from the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We're going to continue our look at green technologies as part of Earth Week and today talk about wind turbines and transmission lines and the role they could play in shrinking our carbon footprint. Then we'll talk with author Ashley Ford about her book, Somebody's Daughter, and her scheduled appearance at the Midwest Literary Walk in Chelsea. That's all next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for tuning in. The technologies we need to create a carbon-free world are all around us. That's at least that's what many advocates and scientists and policymakers are saying. They imagine an America where solar is on every rooftop, EV cars are in every garage, and wind turbines are spinning beyond the beaches of our shores. But this last piece of technology, these wind turbines, are something that we sometimes overlook, either because some people find them unattractive or because of their imposing size and upfront costs. Still, harnessing wind energy will be critical to bringing our carbon outputs down to zero. We really do need all hands on deck. We need to be leaning into lots of different ways of generating power in order to get away from the carbon sources. That's where we want to start the conversation today with this idea of wind turbines and the role that they play and might play in reducing our carbon footprint. And we've got a great guest to help us think this through. Rob Gramlich is uh, the founder and president of Grid Strategies, LLC. It's a power sector consulting firm that works to transition clean energy onto our electrical grids. Rob Gramlich, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen. Great to be here. So tell us about the wind turbines. How do they work? And how effective are they at producing energy and not just any kind of energy, how effective are they at producing the scale and, uh, I guess, breadth of energy that we need in our modern lives? Yes, well, very effective, and scale is the, is the key word. The great thing about wind, which is also true for solar and batteries, is that the costs have come down by about 90% over the last decade. So where it used to be a decade ago, Wind and solar played a small niche role in the power system. I think every single utility in the country now is uh, is at least ex seriously exploring, but in almost all cases, rapidly developing their their wind and solar um, programs, and usually doing them in combination. Some places are better suited to wind, some places to solar, but all of them, almost all of them, are really doing both. Hmm. Uh, so what about the problems with wind energy, the storage issue that I've heard some about, uh, and the fact that, I don't know, you just can't always count on it being windy outside. How reliable can this power source actually be? Yes, well, a very reliable part of a, of a power system, the thing people don't generally understand about how our electric power system work works is that there is this this whole uh, bulk power system that's connected across most of the country so you really should think of it like a an ocean or let's say a great lake where you you pour a bucket of water in and somebody else takes a bucket of water out and the overall uh, level of the lake say stays constant so the power system operators keep that level of supply and demand constant um, and if the wind is blowing in Iowa or it's blowing in Indiana or Ohio or Michigan, 
you know, it's almost always blowing somewhere. Uh, and so you can get to very high penetrations of uh, wind, and then you add solar and you do them together, and of course they operate at different times. Now you're talking about getting two-thirds of your uh, energy from renewable sources, and then you need to start adding quite a bit of storage and transmission um, to make that uh, system work. But it's it, you really have to look at it as a portfolio and usually have uh, some natural gas for, for backup when, when nothing's blowing or uh, shining anywhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I remember really clearly former Governor Jennifer Granholm talking about the potential for wind energy here in the state of Michigan in particular. She was really enthusiastic about the idea that, uh, particularly in the northern parts uh, of the lower peninsula, uh, the the conditions were really good, she thought, for large-scale experimentation with with wind energy. Now, when I drive north, um, I, I certainly notice more turbines now than I did um, you know, five or ten years ago, and in in some places, it seems as though we really are pushing forward with the idea of of scale, right? With the the idea of trying to get some scale going with with wind energy. But but catch us up on where we actually are here in the state of Michigan, and and how aggressively we have harnessed uh, this idea, and whether it's paying the kind of dividends that uh, we would expect. Yeah, well, it's been quite impressive. I'm now watching from afar, but I, I grew up uh, in southeastern Michigan listening to 101.9, uh, and I remember Jennifer Granholm as governor uh, saying those those things. I know she was particularly interested in manufacturing jobs that come along with uh, renewable energy and new clean energy sectors, and uh, I think the latest is that there's 27 manufacturing facilities producing turbines, blades, and other different components of, of wind turbines um, in the state, uh, which is great. There's 3,000 megawatts. So if you think about a typical wind farm being, say, 100 megawatts, that's a pretty big wind farm, um, then you get to 3,000. There's sort of 30 of those large wind farms or you know, maybe 50 of a somewhat smaller size. Uh, around the state now it's the thing about wind is it's not usually where you uh you know not usually close to a population center so most people don't see it uh on a daily basis uh you know until you until you drive north in the summer or something like that um it's kind of uh, they're sort of concentrated in michigan in the in the thumb and then in kind of right smack dab in the middle of the lower peninsula there's a, a bunch of wind farms there so that's tends to be what happens. The average wind speeds tend to be higher in some of these more remote um, places. And the, obviously the land is a lot cheaper. You, you need to um, you know, get, a, get a lease. If you're a wind farm developer, you need to get a lease with a, a farmer usually um, to put the wind turbines on their land. And you know, they're usually happy uh, to have it. Not, you know, not everybody, but Usually enough people are welcoming of uh, having a, a wind project that uh, there's plenty of places, you know, the states are big, the country's big, there's lots of places to put wind farms. Yeah. So uh, give us also a sense of how Michigan compares to other states and other places that we should be looking. I recently drove from northern Illinois down uh, into Missouri uh, through St. Louis, and I was really impressed by the number of turbines I passed and the number of turbine farms, very, very large um, expanses that were just uh, uh, turbines, and it, and it reminded me that uh, maybe there are other places in the country that have more wind uh, and, and are more, again, more enthusiastic than we have been about, uh, about this technology. Yeah, well, that's that's certainly true. Uh, there are places. I mean, interestingly, places like Texas and Iowa are the are the leaders in wind nationally. And you think about the politics of those states. You know, it's not driven by a green agenda or the power of the environmental community in Iowa or Texas. Uh, it is really driven by the the economics. And again, 
certain places have very strong average wind speeds and uh, you know low cost land and you know farmers and ranchers who who welcome it on their uh, on their properties uh, and uh, but most states have pockets of of their uh, of their geography. You know, Michigan has those locations I mentioned. You know, New York is looking at uh, a lot of uh, wind development in the upstate part of the state, and they're building new transmission lines along railways down into the uh, into the city. Uh, so there's a lot of that sort of development around the country, and it is interesting when you get on the interstate highways and drive around the country. Uh, you see a lot. In particular, nationally, you can think about this on a national scale. Um, almost 90% of our wind energy capacity is in the 15 states between the Mississippi River and the Rockies. You think about those, you know, Great Plains states, Nebraska, uh, Montana, uh, out there in the upper and lower Great Plains. Uh, it's just massive wind power capacity, and so they're they're developing the transmission lines to deliver that to the to the coasts, to you know, back and back and forth. And that uh, that does two things. One, you access some super cheap power that uh, that this uh, this nation is is blessed to possess. Uh, but you also uh, enable the power to move back and forth. Going back to that uh, big lake analogy, uh, you know the wind's always blowing somewhere, and and it's it's blowing in Michigan. It may not be in Montana, and vice versa. So you you get that uh, that diversity, that geographic diversity that the power system planners love. Uh, and so um, uh, there are certain states that are just always going to do better because of their natural resource than uh, than other states. Uh, but I think there are a lot of states like Michigan that, that have quite a lot of room to grow, and the state certainly could do more. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking with Rob Gramlich. He is the founder and president of Grid Strategies, LLC, a power sector consulting firm that tries to usher clean energy onto electrical grids. Uh, right now we're talking about wind power, turbines, uh, massive turbines that uh, maybe you see in some places here in Michigan. We're talking about the potential for that wind power. How much can we generate? How much could it displace of the carbon-fueled energy that uh, that we rely on? And uh, how could we be more aggressive about the idea of embracing more of this wind technology to produce energy? I want to hear from you during the conversation as well. Give us a call and let us know about your optimism when it comes to wind energy. What do you make of our use of wind energy here in Michigan? Do you think it needs to be ramped up here in our state in rural areas or maybe along the shores of the Great Lakes, which is a really great place for wind turbines? Uh, what do you imagine to be important renewable energy sources for our future. Uh, also give us a call and let us know if you are not buying any of this, uh, if you don't buy into at all the idea that alternative energy sources are an effective way to reduce our carbon footprint. Are you worried about cost? Are you worried about uh, essentially duplicating the energy generation that we have now? In other words, not sacrificing usage uh, in order to, to, to switch sources. Um, give us a call and, and let us know what you think the answers are then to stopping the planet from warming uh, the way it is. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we'll work you into the conversation that way. Uh, Rob, we had a caller who couldn't stay on the line who asks um, whether we are considering bird migration when we put these wind turbines in. Uh, and I guess I would even broaden that question. Um, I mean, these are very large structures. Um, they, they do disrupt wind patterns to some degree, I would imagine, if, if you have a lot of them in, in one place. But they also would disrupt all kinds of uh, uh, natural, uh, you know, natural environments for, uh, for wildlife. Uh, how concerned should we be about those things? And, and when we are building these turbines or these, uh, these turbine farms, 
Is that something that they're thinking about? Stephen, it's really not an issue, it turns out. Now, certainly, we need to study that both on a sort of a general scale about wind energy development in the United States and also on a very local scale in terms of what impacts might there be in a particular location with a particular you know, wildlife and other environmental uh, issues that may be present at a, at a particular spot where somebody wants to develop a wind farm. And uh, we can be comfortable that uh, those studies are done. They have to be done. Um, and, you know, you need permits. And uh, there's, a, there's a whole set of biologists and ornithologists that, that uh, work on these individual as well as macro scale um, studies. But there's really been no population wide impacts the uh the actual collisions with wind turbines are uh, incidental and random and not anything different than any 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 building uh experiences uh with um with birds um and so it, it really hasn't been an issue the only place where it's been an issue is in um uh certain uh sage grouse type areas where uh, those uh, those little birds don't like big tall things because they think there's going to be a raptor sitting on it. So if they're ne- you know they want to be nesting in a certain area, they don't like the tall thing right next to it. So that's that's the type of thing that you know still needs to be studied and worked around. And that, and right now there's a lot you know the developers and the um, conservation groups are well aware of that issue and they work around it and move the wind farms to appropriate places. But there's, there's not really any bird uh, issue with wind as a, mm. as a national issue. There's plenty of places to put them that are entirely, entirely safe. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm glad you, you provided that information because that's a question that I think an awful lot of people have on their minds. Um, all right, let's go to Greg in Detroit. Greg, welcome to the show. Good morning. Good Hi. morning. Um, yeah, I love this discussion, and I, I, I own an EV. I love it, absolutely love it. Um, we'll never go back to a gas car. Um, when I plug it in at home, I'm plugging in a like a, about a 90-kilowatt-hour battery. Uh, now, of course, it, that, that does not go back into the grid. I'm just taking electricity. But when you talk about the need for storage, do you see a, a, a scenario where hundreds of thousands of EVs plugged in various cities various times of the day can help supply that power at night when solar and wind aren't producing what they need to? Great question, Greg. Uh, I appreciate the call. Rob, what's the answer? Yeah, Greg, no, excellent question. And uh, I, I love that you're thinking that way. I encourage everybody to think about our, our power system that way because absolutely there's a massive opportunity to shift our consumption around, particularly with our, our new sources of consumption like uh, electric vehicles, uh, which I really expect are going to grow because like you, Greg, I, I drive electric now and I will never go back. It's just such a better car. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, so if we can just you know charge those cars uh, in some way that's responsive to what the grid needs, going back to that lake analogy of you know when the, you know somebody putting a bucket of water in the lake and somebody taking it out. Um, you certainly can have times when there's a, a ton of uh, wind and solar being produced, even at the same time, you're putting a bunch in uh, and, you know, raising the water level on that lake. And you want to have people then at that time consuming a lot. And you can charge your car if there was some signal or mechanism. And there certainly these do exist with utilities, um, you know, to have people um charge their batteries at that point, that would be great. Also, think about your air conditioning in the summer. You can, in the middle of the day when the sun's shining really bright, you can, you can actually, uh, you know, cool your house down an extra bit, let's say two degrees. So you don't really notice it much, but you can actually sort of store that cool air in your house. And then into the evening, you would have less of an air conditioning cooling load. Um, because your house is already, you know, a couple degrees cooler than it would otherwise be. Um, so when the sun is setting or lower and you're getting less solar output, uh, your, your house is still comfortable. So if, if we can think more about shifting loads, we really can help integrate a whole lot more uh, clean generation like wind and solar. Mm-hmm. Uh, Greg, I really appreciate 
the call and the really provocative uh, uh, question there about uh, about wind wind power. Um, thanks so much for uh, for being part of the program. Let's go next to Jim in Benzie County near Traverse City. Jim, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. It's Hi. great to be on. And it's great to have uh, here Rob on here. Uh, I'm a former power engineer, uh, worked in the utility world, and um, very interested in the high voltage DC macro grid. I know Rob's been working on that, and I'm wondering if he could talk about some of the benefits of having a, a macro grid overlay uh, around the country. Hmm. Great question, uh, Rob. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Jim. I am excited about that, too. It's not um, gotten a lot of attention yet nationally, um, but I, I, I just think the, the economics and the physics lead us towards that ultimately because uh, high-voltage DC transmission, direct current, uh, as uh, it sounds like Jim understands, is a really cheap way to deliver power very long distances, and we have a lot of opportunities to use uh, corridors like rail corridors and highway corridors to um, uh, actually site these and route these uh, these lines. Uh, and the technology has improved so much that you really could think about a national scale grid, which, for example, could um, be uh, heating Michigan homes in the evening from solar power in California. Uh, you think about where the sun is. I remember in Michigan, you know, watching football on a Sunday night, the San Diego Chargers game was, you know, it was all sunny and we were freezing in Michigan. Well, you know, you think about how you could, you could be powering Michigan from California solar in the, in the evening, uh, and then sending wind power back from mid, uh, Michigan and other Midwestern states to California, uh, when they need it, like in the early morning when the sun hasn't come up yet. There's an incredible amount of this sort of diversity. Um, so if you put together the wind output, the solar output, and the load, the electricity consumption, you find all these opportunities to share power really efficiently. And if it's spread across uh, everybody in terms of their electricity rate uh, contributions to it, it, it really looks co uh, cost effective. So, you know, this needs more study. People need to think about it. It would change our institutions and industry quite a bit. But I, I think there are great opportunities to uh, to look at that. Okay, Rob Gramlich, uh, founder and president of Grid Strategies, LLC. It was really great to have you here with us uh, to talk about the possibilities of wind power here in the state of Michigan and around the country. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Coming up, we are going to talk with the author, Ashley C. Ford, about her new memoir, somebody's daughter and her upcoming appearance at the midwest literary walk this weekend stay with us for more detroit today bringing you news that matters stories that impact your life music from the motor city and around the world this is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Incarceration is a subject we talk about all of the time here on Detroit Today. We talk about mass incarceration and its toll on communities. We talk about when it is right or moral for the government to step in and deny a person of all their basic freedoms because they have violated the covenants of law that keep us all safe. We talk about the policies and societal issues that lead to incarceration in the first place. And we talk about what happens when people come back to society after they have been imprisoned or jailed. The one thing we don't talk often enough about 
are the people who are not incarcerated, who are still disproportionately affected by the fact that other people are. I'm talking about family members and loved ones of those who go off to jail or prison. What does it do to a person and their family when they lose someone close to them, someone important to them, to prison? That's precisely the subject of a new memoir by my next guest. Ashley C. Ford's book, Somebody's Daughter, tells the story of a childhood defined by the looming absence of her incarcerated father. Ford is going to appear this weekend at the Midwest Literary Walk in Chelsea, Michigan, which is sponsored by the Chelsea District Library. She's going to appear this Saturday at 2.30 p.m. at the Chelsea First United Methodist Church. And Ashley C. Ford joins us now to talk about her memoir and this massive issue of incarceration in America. Ashley, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me. I love Detroit, and I'm so happy to be talking with you. Today. Yeah, it's really great that you're here, and I'm really excited that you'll be at the at the Midwest Literary Walk in in, in Chelsea, one of my favorite local events. Um, so, yeah, your your father was incarcerated after being convicted of rape, and you write that he was guilty of that crime. So, yes. talk about who your father was and how your relationship with him and your feelings toward him have evolved over time. You know, it's interesting because one of the central issues of my book is that I didn't know why my father was in prison until I was 14 years old, and he went to prison when I was around six months old. So I had no real concept of my father as a human being or as a person. I got these letters from him frequently, and I knew that there was somebody out there, my dad purportedly, who loved me and thought I was the best person in the world. <laughs> um, and other than that, I didn't know anything else about him. And everything that I knew about him for most of those years was pieced together. So my feelings about him evolved from like, you know, what was once a, a fantasy person, um, this, this lovely person out there who thought I was the best and I didn't know why he wasn't around, but damn, I sure wished he was here, right? Mm -hmm. And then it became finding out what he had done and having that sort of not only shatter my perception of him, um, and definitely shatter that fantasy, but also make me question myself and what that meant about me that this was half, this person made up half of my DNA. And this person thought I was an amazing person, but did that count if he was a terrible person um, or an evil person? And, you know, I, I go through that part and I eventually get to a part where I begin to understand that having an understanding of my father as a human um, would allow me to understand myself as a human as well. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I want to talk about what his absence meant for you and for your family. We, we often talk about people who are incarcerated in terms of the crimes that they've committed and whether they deserve or don't deserve uh, the sentence that they're getting. But uh, in almost all cases, they are leaving behind uh, a lot of people and they are leaving behind uh -huh. families. And when we're talking about um, men being incarcerated, in, in many cases, we're talking about the, the, the primary earner in a family um, uh, going away. So I'm, I wonder if you can talk about what what life was like before and what it was like after he went away. You know, my parents uh, had me when they were 22 and 21 years old. Um, not even. My dad actually went to prison about two weeks before he turned 21. Mm -hmm. So he was still 20. And 
they were young kids. They hadn't known each other a long time. They'd known each other actually for only about a year. They got married when my mom was five months pregnant with me. They had dreams. They had goals. They started working. Um, my mom became a student at the Indiana Business College. They really tried to do it right. They were trying to do everything according to the American dream. And then my father blindsided my mother, you know, with his actions. And that not only changed, obviously, our potential in our family um, for any kind of wealth building or any kind of um, sustainable financial situation, but it also emotionally traumatized my mother. I mean, imagine being a 22-year-old woman with a toddler, a one-year-old, not even, um, and your husband goes to prison for a heinous crime, an absolutely heinous crime that he confessed to and did commit. And while he's in prison, you find out that you are pregnant with his second child, with mm. your second child. Mm. And you are now a single mother of two kids under two on your own, by yourself at 22 years old. And the country at the time, you know, this was the Reagan era, is telling you that the worst thing you could do is ask for help because that would make you a welfare queen. Yeah, yeah. So that's uh, what it was like. <laughs> I mean, and, and I'm glad you talked about that in such specificity because I think that's the part of this that's often hidden for people. They don't think of people who are headed off to prison as complete humans, right? They think no. of what they've done. They think of maybe they even are thinking about the societal implications of that person going away, they don't always think of what are the circumstances of this person's life and how do they connect to other people and how will they affect other people when this person um, when this person goes away. Um, I'm not sure that's correct. Um, I want to say that that's the majority of people, yeah. but I find that when I have these conversations, there are quite a few people who defend the position that the suffering of the family and the children is part is of part the of punishment oh, wow. for My the goodness. incarcerated person. And they think it's okay because it's not their fault, right? They didn't do it. Like, I didn't do anything wrong, yeah. you know? So why should my tax dollars or even my concern um, go toward people who I have no direct um, love or care for? And, of course, that leaves children of the incarcerated, loved ones of the incarcerated, feeling ashamed and isolated. And when we talk about the fact that kids and people who um, are related to people who have been incarcerated at times end up, quite often, end up incarcerated themselves, you have to wonder if part of that equation isn't just the influence of the incarcerated parent. Um, is it not also the influence of the society who teaches the child of the incarcerated parent that they may as well be incarcerated too, mm. that they may as well be a criminal as well? Mm. I mean, that's such a menacing approach and, and dimension to this, that idea of people deserve this loss. People deserve mm -hmm. this kind of this kind of punishment. Um, that's just incredible. Um, so you have spent a lot of time thinking about how to forgive your yeah. dad. Um, and I think that's something that um, lots of people, of course, struggle with, right? Um, mm -hmm. People whose parents have done, you know, much, much lesser things than, than what you're dad was convicted uh, of, of doing. But, uh -huh. but talk about how you even begin that process of forgiving this person. I think that um, my process of forgiving my dad actually went a bit backwards in terms of how we usually think of forgiveness. I think often we think of forgiveness as um, sort of deciding that we're just not even going to think about this anymore. We're not going to talk about it. We're, it's never going to come up again. I have decided 
to let it go and let it be. And however you have harmed me or someone else, I have decided to just forgive you for that. And now it's like it's gone. Um, But that's not reality. And my concept of forgiveness has shifted into believing that it doesn't really have a whole lot to do with treating a person like they never did anything wrong and has a lot more to do with me giving up on the idea that it was ever going to be different. Um, hmm. I, I can't go back. My dad can't go back. Um, I cannot hold on to the fantasies of a life that does not exist a life where my dad never did what he did, a life where he was in my life, my entire life, present in my life, a life where my mother didn't have to live with the pressures of being the sole earner and and the head of her household in such a way that it did not allow her to fully embody, know, or grow into herself. You know, those are all the things I want. And those are the things that I can't have. I can't go back and be a 14-year-old who is close with her mother and whose dad is in the next room. That's never going to be. I'm 35 now. (laughs) You know, I have to give up on that. And to me, that is forgiveness. It is not um, deciding it's all okay. It's giving up on the fantasy version of my life and of our connection. Mm. Mm. Okay, when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with uh, Ashley C. Ford. She is the author of the new memoir, Somebody's Daughter. She's going to appear at the Midwest Literary Walk this Saturday at 2.30 p.m. at the Chelsea First United Methodist Church in Chelsea, Michigan. We want to hear from you as well while we're talking with Ashley C. Ford. Uh, What, if anything, do you think... We owe the families of people who are incarcerated. Uh, We especially want to hear from you if you have similar experiences yourself to to what Ashley experienced, a parent being incarcerated. Uh, Also call in and talk about how you deal with trauma or adversity from your own childhood. What does living with that trauma look like and mean to you as an adult? And How do you reach the point not just of being okay living with what happened, but maybe forgiving some of the people who were responsible? Is that possible? Is that necessary? Is that something you have struggled with uh, in your life? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always... Thanks for tuning in. I'm talking right now with uh, Ashley C. Ford. She's author of the new memoir, Somebody's Daughter. And she will appear at the Midwest Literary Walk this Saturday at 2.30 p.m. at the Chelsea First United Methodist Church in Chelsea. We're talking about uh, incarceration, uh, the way that incarceration affects the people who are close to the person who goes off to jail or prison. Uh, That's the subject of somebody's daughter. Uh, It's also something that, of course, uh, lots of us uh, experience or deal with uh, as children, uh, especially here in the city of Detroit. Um, We'd love to hear from you during this conversation uh, as well. Call and tell us what you make of the way that we take care of or don't take care of the families of people who are incarcerated. Uh, We especially want to hear from you if you've got these experiences yourself. Uh, Tell us how you worked through them. Also, give us a sense of how you manage things like childhood trauma or adversity, Um, how you face those things, how you uh, come to terms with them as an adult, and how you even think about perhaps forgiving some of the people uh, who create the conditions 
for your trauma or your adversity. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there, and we can include you that way. Let's go to Courtney in Livonia. Courtney, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Mm-hmm. Um, my father was convicted of attempted rape. Um, it was actually before I was born and before he met my mother. And then, like Miss Ford, I also did not find out about the reason for his imprisonment until I was in my teens. Um, so I just wanted to say thank you for sharing the story because um, you touched on the shame that you might feel or just what it means for you as a person. And I've felt that too. Most people don't know this about me because I've been ashamed about what it it could mean about me as a person, if anything, especially someone who considers herself to be somewhat of a feminist. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, And so I just wanted to say thank you for sharing that and talking about that. And I can't wait to read your book. Thank you. So, Courtney, before you uh, go, mm-hmm. uh, if I can ask a couple questions, how how old are you? Oh, I'm 39. Okay. So very similar. Yeah. Um, I actually found out from my mom, um, I think, when I was a late teen. And she didn't give me a ton of details. But then once I became old enough, um, you know, I Googled it. And I was able to find the details of what yeah. happened. Um, I never talked about it with my dad. We didn't have that kind of relationship. He was also an alcoholic, but that's a long story. Um, and then he died when I was 21. So, you know, since then, it's just been complicated. Obviously, it wasn't a regular grieving process, but just, hmm. you know, just trying to process that and what it means for the relationship I thought I had with my dad or yeah. the person that he was and who I am. So so the reason I asked that question mm-hmm. was because I, I tend to think that time is a really important factor in the way that um, we as adults deal with these things. Uh, and and I think of time as a great ally, I think, uh, in in kind of coming kind of coming to reckon with things or being able to manage things. Um, and, and so I was curious about how much time you've had mm-hmm. already to deal with this and whether you anticipate that more time to kind of sit with it and think about it and maybe know about know more about it uh, will make a difference. Uh, do, you, do you feel like this is something you would be more comfortable talking about and being honest with people about as you get older? Um, that's a good question. I I do think just as I've gotten older personally, and this may be just my personal journey, but you know, you as you gain more life experience, you start to understand things in a bigger context or gain more confidence or whatever. So I do think that it is something that I could share with more people. Um, you know, I still just do go back to that, just that, I'm going to say it's an icky feeling of like, this was my dad, you know, and that he did this to another woman and how could that be? And then how could that be me who is not that type of person? Mm. Um, so yeah, I think I could be more comfortable with it over time just as I change and grow as a person. Yeah. Courtney, I really appreciate you calling and sharing what clearly is a, a, a really difficult story. Um, Ashley Ford, I want to give you a chance to react to what uh, Courtney is saying here. Um, well, first of all, I also want to thank Courtney for sharing that because I got to tell you, uh, kids <laughs> of the incarcerated spend a lot of time thinking we're the only ones. Mm. Um, and especially thinking that uh, we are the only ones who are willing to talk about it. So when someone just mentions it, when they bring it up, when they share that information, I automatically know how much, uh, how much work it takes on the self to just be able to talk about it. So I appreciate her bravery and her courage for doing that. It makes me feel less alone. Um, but I also just want to say, you know, time, I also believe that time helps things. I also believe that time will give you the opportunity to work on things. But I also know how hard it is to have that time unless you come from a certain socioeconomic background or move into a certain socioeconomic background. 
I have to tell you, I think I would be in a much worse place uh, emotionally if I was still a day laborer of any kind. <laughs> I got it. I, I don't <laughs> know that I would have literally the physical energy to deal with um, the emotional processing that it takes to be honest about something like this. And that is hard work. Like, I, I, I think that part of the reason why people are so okay allowing children to suffer, allowing people to suffer um, through no fault of their own hmm. is because we do think that, oh, well, eventually it'll just take a little time, but they'll be okay. And we're not thinking about what people lose in that amount of time, the kind of opportunities they lose, the relationships they can lose, why they're trying to heal and they're not in a good place, um, the money <laughs> that you can lose on when you are trying to heal and not in a good place. So you know that you can't take that job that's super stressful but makes more money because you know that the way your stress works, you just would lay in bed and not be able to get up after a certain amount of time. And that's not everybody, but it's a lot of people. And time alone does not cure or heal trauma. People need the opportunity to rest, and they need the opportunity to work on themselves. A big part of the reason why my relationships with my parents were so rough and so difficult and so broken, um, even my relationship with my mom, is because what mom of three to four children, you know, at a time who has never made more than $40,000 a year, even though she works hard for the government and often works for overtime, when would that mom have any time to think about herself mm -hmm. or her feelings? Um, mm -hmm. And when would she have time to teach that kind of thing to her children? Yeah. So I, I just think, yeah, there's a lot of shame. And we can't pretend that that shame just comes from the family or just comes from inside the individual. It's a societal shame. We shame people for being related to the incarcerated. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, uh, so, so I want to talk about the fact that this is your first book. This is your mm -hmm. debut book. Um, and, the vehicle here, the the memoir, uh, and and that genre of writing, not everybody goes to that form mm -hmm. uh, for their first book. Um, talk about why you did, and uh, I guess what what that does for you, um, you know, in, yeah. in being able to tell that story. Now, listen, I never wanted to write nonfiction, <laughs> never thought I would write a memoir. I very much come from the kind of family that's what happens in this house stays in this house. <laughs> we don't talk about that. We don't tell our secrets. Um, and I, I believed that. I thought that was the right thing to do. I thought being silent about the way people had harmed you or others or themselves was what you did when you loved somebody. Um, I think a lot of families, a lot of people think that uh, accountability is the opposite of love. They think that trying to hold someone accountable or allowing someone to be held accountable uh, when you love them is the wrong thing to do, which is not the case. Um, but that's how a lot of people see it. And I think that I just, I'm trying to think of the right way to say this. Um, I'm sorry. I think I lost my way. No, okay. <laughs> I lost my place a little bit. Um, <laughs> can okay. you say the question again? Please? Yeah. I mean, I the, the idea of this being your first book. Oh, I think, oh God. Yes. I think okay. There's so, something, there's something it's certainly unusual, right? Uh, it is. <laughs> uh, but there's something it's about, there's something about what that, this form can accomplish for you. I think that, Yes. That, that really matters here. Well, the book couldn't really live any other way. I did, like I said, I didn't want to write nonfiction. I tried mm -hmm. um, to write it other ways. Um, I tried to put it in fiction. Um, for a while, I thought I would write a YA novel that had a lot of the same themes in mm. it. Um, and it just would not work. <laughs> it wouldn't <laughs> work that way. And I think it's because um, the motivation for writing my story 
is and always will be connection. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to connect with people who get it. I'm trying to connect with people who can hear it. I'm trying to connect with people who need to hear it. And I just couldn't stop thinking about how much it would have meant to me as a kid who spent all her extra time in libraries for the most part, what it would have meant to me to find a book where someone was telling this story with their name on it Hmm. and with their face on it. And they weren't standing in the middle of that story in a place of shame they were standing in the middle of that story from a place of self-trust and empowerment. Mm-hmm. Um, what that would have done for me as a young person is, in my mind, immeasurable. And the opportunity to do that for somebody else, anybody else, that's a dream come true. So I think I, I wrote my dream book. I wrote the book that I desperately, desperately wanted to read or find on a library shelf when I was a child. Yeah. Wow. Okay, Ashley C. Ford, uh, we're really looking forward to you being at the Midwest Literary Walk this weekend. But uh, especially, uh, I want to thank you for joining us on Detroit Today and talking about this really wonderful memoir that you've written. Thanks so much for being with us. This has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Okay, that is going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to talk to an expert on how to electrify our grid and our energy sources. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.